Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And kids, follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes old and new on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. Oh, how can you not love today's guest when he was collecting some very nice paychecks as one of the stars of America's most popular sitcoms, Married with Children. His desire to return to the stage took precedence in his life, and he came back to the magic of live theater forsaking the comforts or trappings, depending on who you ask, of Tinseltown. Lucky for us theater lovers, Hollywood's loss was our game. Ain't that the truth? Since he made his off-Broadway debut in the late 1970s, our guest has appeared in the original productions of Snoop. A History of the American Film, A Day in Hollywood, A Night in Ukraine. It's only a play. By the way, meet Vera Stark, Dead Poet Society, Torch Song Trilogy, The Pirates of Penzance, Titanic, one of my favorites, The Visit, and the revivals of I Do, I Do, and Bells Are Ringing, and the Arena Stage's 1990 version of Merrily Roll Along, but he is also most known to you kiddies for his over 500 performances as the great and powerful Wizard of Oz in Wicked. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Christopher Durang, Tommy Toon, Tommy Walsh, Maury Yeston, Cheetah Rivera, John Kander, John McGlynn, and so many more, here is the man whose chances with Susan Stroman were ruined by Anthony Hopkins, Tony nominee, David Garrison. David, how are you today? <laughs> I'm well, thank you. Interesting you would dig up that little tidbit. Would you? Well, why don't you tell us about that little tidbit? I, I had one and one only date with Susan Stroman, and this will... Uh, put you in some sort of historical perspective. And I took her to see the first run of um, <laughs> Silence of the Lambs and spent half of the movie basically under the seat in front of me with my hand over my face. And she astutely observed that I was a wimp of the first order. And that was, that was our first and last date. Um, Curiously enough, I wound up playing Hannibal Lecter in Silence the Musical some decades later off Broadway. <laughs> so full circle. That, that's some sort of a karmic payback. I don't know. So, but, uh, <laughs> so, 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 
Uh, I do. I do see uh, her on occasion, and uh, there doesn't seem to be any, <laughs> any residual damage from that uh, one encounter. It, it was such a great story. I had to ask. All right, now you are one of our first guests who works extensively with a person that we talk about a lot on this podcast, and we'd like to explore a little bit. You worked with John McGlynn on oh, yes, uh, an, often. Can you can you tell us a little bit about him, what your relationship was like, and some of the projects you worked on with him? Um, this was back in the uh, Jurassic period, uh, <laughs> in the uh, early 1980s, and uh, John was a music theater historian and musicologist whose passion was uh, archival recordings and presented concert recordings of um, shows that wouldn't necessarily be well known. In, in in current times, a lot of Jerome Kern stuff and um, uh, early 20th century um, musical theater writers. And um, I won't be able to pull off the top of my head all of the, the concerts we did together. Uh, one Touch of Venus was, was certainly mm -hmm. one of them. And um, then he got into a contract with EMI in London to record a lot of these sort of quote unquote lost scores. Um, and then his biggest um, triumph was the complete restoration of the complete original showboat in an, in an all-star cast recording, which I was lucky enough to be a part of. Um, but that still I think is probably the, the most definitive recording that that show ever made. Um, yeah. Teresa Stratus and Frederick Unstadt and Jerry Hadley and uh, anyway, it was a, it was a lovely group of people. Yeah. Um, so John was a was a real uh, character, and um, he <laughs> we've heard. Yeah, <laughs> he, he was a Southern boy, and um, uh, he liked um, he he liked to surround himself with. Uh, with a, a, a core group of, of players, basically. I did a number of recordings with John, Oh Lady Lady um, mm -hmm. was one of them. Um, um, I, I, I won't be able to, to pull them off the top of my head because I don't have a list in front of me. But um, he was embarking on a huge project um, to record all of the Princess Theater shows that Jerome Kern had written uh, when he unexpectedly died. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he, he was so interesting in that he would disappear for months at a time. He wouldn't know what, where he was or what he was doing. And then all of a sudden he'd come to the surface with a great big new project and tons of money where he, <laughs> he got people to underwrite these things. I don't know, but he was, he was able to do it. Uh, and um, off we'd go again and, and, and do another one. Recorded a number of them at uh, Abbey Road, which was kind of fun mm. in in London. Um, <laughs> I do remember seeing Sean once um, conducting at the Hollywood Bowl and um, with the LA uh, Phil. And I I can't recall what the uh, number was he was doing, but it involved a dance break mm -hmm. from the original score, whatever it was. And John observed every single uh, repeat notation in every single score because <laughs> he was going to make sure that yeah. the original was followed. And so there you were at the Hollywood Bowl and somebody sang a song and then the, the dance break started and then it repeated <laughs> and then it repeated again. 
And a lot of it was just umchuk, 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 umchuk. There wasn't a whole lot going on. And you could just see the eyes of the players in the LA Phil rolling <laughs> as they <laughs> came around the turn one more time and had to loop it again. Anyway, but, For completion's sake. I do, I do I do miss John. He was a he was a jolly fellow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And that showbo recording is you know definitive and, and legendary. When did you start to realize that you had this gift for singing? <laughs> I'm just still trying to figure that out. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've always referred to to my voice as as an illegitimate voice. Okay. Um, How come? How come? Oh, I you know um, my my strength is in patter songs. And, yeah. and 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 comedy material and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I I start to sweat bullets, um, and just flop sweat if somebody waves a, a ballad in front of me. I've been known to sing them, but um, they they just terrify me. Okay, uh, and um, I I think a moving target's much harder to hit. So I right. to... no place no place to hide. <laughs> that's, in a that's right. There's, There's no no place to hide, to hide in, no. in a beautiful. Ballad. That's smart yeah. thinking. Sure, so sure, did you did you start falling in love with theater when you were in high school? Now you you grew up in New Jersey, right? I did. A Jersey so, boy. Were you close to the city? Were you coming in a lot? Uh, not really. Could have been Ohio. Um, yeah. <laughs> we were. We were um, just uh, near the Jersey Shore, actually. Um, same oh, town okay. as Bruce Springsteen. Same high school as Bruce Springsteen. Oh, that's He's cool. A couple years okay. older than I, and just slightly more um, <clears throat> well known. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, I got I got hooked in high school. And uh, made myself a, a bargain that if uh, I hadn't made it by the time I was forty, I'd go do something else because forty seemed like that's nice, ancient, ancient, yeah, of course, you know, his way in the future, of course. Um, yeah, but anyway, so, it, it, I got lucky and things worked out. Did, mm-hmm. what, so, what was it for you? What got you on stage in high school? Uh, you... As is usually the case uh, with these things, um, uh, a teacher, uh-huh. mm-hmm. and in my case, also an older sibling. I had an, an older sister who got all the leads in the high school musicals. And um, I think in her junior year, um, they did The King and I. Mm-hmm. And they were in need of uh, Siamese children. Uh, and there was not a great supply of Siamese children in uh, small town New Jersey. So I got roped into uh, to being in the show. Uh, my very first line ever spoken on a stage, I recall to this day, was walk on water and um wow. that was it i was you know a skinny skinny little kid who wasn't particularly yeah. good at sports and then uh, i all of a sudden was on stage all these lights this music and thought oh this is pretty good yeah and and um, what did your folks do uh they were both um in the school business my mom taught first grade for 120 years my father was a school superintendent yeah my sister went on to be a teacher i mean i'm yeah. the black sheep of the family <laughs> <laughs> Were they were they supportive of you going into this field, or did they, they were? Yeah. Bless their souls. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think you know, in, in, on some level, not I, I know on some level it was disappointing for them. I, I, I was a good student. I was valedictorian of my class. I, oh. you know, I had scholarships offered to Ivy League schools. Blah 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 yeah. blah blah. And I, I went to Boston University School of Theater Arts at the College of Fine Arts, um, but they, you know. They went with it, and I think you know the the evening I premiered on Broadway. They were pretty proud. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they so they got to see you 
have so many wonderful successes. Yeah. That's a very, very yeah. nice thing. Of course, now I'm the one who doubts whether it was a smart thing. Well, to do, that's a, that's neither here nor there. Right. Yeah. What, Back what, at that deal I made myself when I was 15 years old. Now, wait a I minute. What's our definition? Right. Yeah, and what made you choose uh, BU? Well, in, in those days, <laughs> when Caesar Augustus, no, uh, <laughs> when, uh, when, if you were serious about uh, a professional career in theater, you thought about Juilliard, um, you thought about um, uh, Carnegie Mellon, mm-hmm. uh, you thought about maybe Northwestern, and you thought about Yale, but that was only a graduate program. Mm-hmm. So um, of the other three, Northwestern was too far away. Um, Juilliard was strictly a conservatory program, and I wanted to be in a university so that I'd have a, a, a broader range of opportunity in terms of um, academics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to find a conservatory program, a VFA program within the university, was a little trickier. And that left pretty much Carnegie and, uh, and BU as the, as the good ones in those days. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I visited both and, and uh, chose BU, and I'm glad I did because mm-hmm. that led directly in a very easy way to a professional career. So what is some of the things that you learned at BU that you still take with you to this day? Always run really quickly if a streetcar is coming at you. Great. Uh, <laughs> it was an incredibly strong um, acting program. Alan Schneider and Zelda Fitchhandler were uh, adjunct members of the faculty. Uh, in the theater program at that time. Uh, Zelda, of course, was the founding director of Arena Stage in Washington. Alan Schneider was uh, the uh, resident director there and was famous for directing the American premiere of Waiting for Godot. They invited a couple of students in our senior year to be to go down to Arena as interns uh, and um, from each of the programs, design, directing, and acting. And uh, Alfred Woodard and I were uh, invited to, to go down um, for our final semester. And so we, we spent our final semester at arena, you know, carrying spears and cleaning up after the elephants. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, I was invited to, to join the company for the following year. Mm-hmm. And wow. so I stayed at arena for th- uh, three seasons. Um, those were the really heady days at arena. It was pretty much the, premier resident theater company in America. Um, they had just returned from the first American tour of the Soviet Union that any uh, regional theater had made. Um, and uh, people like Bob Prosky, uh, Diane Wiest, mm-hmm. uh, these were members of the permanent company in those days. And um, great it, 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 was, it was great times. The, the final show I did there was a play with music by Christopher Durang called The History of the American Film. It subsequently moved to Broadway. So I can't imagine an easier route from wow. school to professional yeah. life. Did you get your equity card from uh, Arena as well? well I mean, was that- Again, lucky, lucky. Uh, that third season was ending the, the time in which you could continue to work as an equity apprentice. Right. So following... A history of the American film, I would have had to have gotten my equity card somewhere, somehow. Well, <laughs> gee, you know, 
How nice. Yeah. Here's your card yeah. and go to Broadway. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. At Arena Stage, like you said, this is really when it was just blossoming and, and, and seemed to be in, in charge of so many theatrical the, uh, ideas and stuff like that. What was it like being in a room with someone like Alan Schneider or Zelda Fishland? What was that world like for you? I still have a little indentation on my uh, left shoulder from Alan poking. David, David, stick with me, David. David, David, right there. Okay, right where the the clavicle meets your shoulder. Um, it, it, it was the best of what a resident company could be. Um, and they were pushing the envelope in so many ways, so many interesting literary ways. Um, Zelda had a particular um, affection for new works from Eastern Europe. So there's a lot of interesting stuff coming from... Uh, behind the Iron Curtain, and um, also uh, the uh, newer stuff, avant-garde stuff from, from Western Europe. So that, that, was, mm-hmm. that was pretty cool to be, to be around yeah. that. Um, but they were also doing American classics like um, Our Town, mm-hmm. um, Inherit the Wind, um, Front Page, wonderful, wonderful production of Front Page. Um, we did a wonderful production of Once in a Lifetime, um, that oh. actually went to Broadway with a different cast. Um, so it, it, it was just, I can't, I can't begin to describe the excitement of what it was like with, with both theaters. And then during that time, a, a new downstairs cabaret theater started as well, the old VAT room. Um, they, they were so much ahead of the curve of, of what uh, other regional theaters were doing. Huh. A lot of younger people today, they don't get the luxury of being part of a company, a resident company. Uh, Can you walk us through what that was like and what was your artistic life like on a daily basis? Well, generally, we'd be rehearsing one show and performing a different one at night. So it was a constant uh, expanding repertoire. Uh, we weren't always working with the same group of people because there were three theaters in operation. Mm. So, you know, very often you'd be working with a couple of people from the company in one show and a couple of people from the company on a, on a different show that night. And the, the rest of the um, cast would be f- filled with visiting artists. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that was wonderful about working with a company, especially a company of extraordinarily talented people was that you got to be team players in a way that's much more difficult uh, when you're in a room for the first time. Mm-hmm. These people knew how to pass the ball back and forth and knew each other's strengths and weaknesses and could play to those strengths, just like a good basketball team yeah. uh, or good hockey team can. The trick is that you got to avoid falling into traps because you do have your tricks. Um, and you're comfortable, you know you've got a year's worth of, of employment uh, and possibly next year's as well. So uh, one thing Zelda was pretty good at was uh, forcing company members into sometimes stretching themselves, giving opportunities that you wouldn't get if you were just playing for time in the commercial world. Mm-hmm. So two of the great advantages were that there was a, a wonderful trust you knew these people, you trusted these people, you could take a chance, you'd know they'd catch you. Um, and the other thing was you got to explore some sides of your craft that you wouldn't necessarily get to explore in other circumstances. There's a limit to that, of course. Yeah. But um, when you're in the professional world, you're pretty well into a specific groove or a specific type. And um, 
you know, in a company situation, there was a little more flexibility, and that that, that was wonderful, especially for a young uh, person starting out. Mm-hmm. I got to do a, a, you know a wide range of stuff. Um, they let me do you know big parts in the experimental theater downstairs, mm. and um, you know supporting parts in the in the two big venues and understudy uh, you know the leads. When you when you finally get to come to Broadway with the history of the American film. What was it about this show that was so wonderful that it, it had to be transferred up to New York? Um, it was Christopher Duran crazy. Great. Which already makes it wonderful. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, it was funny and touching and incredibly entertaining. I'm here to tell you it wasn't a Broadway show. Mm-hmm. At least it wasn't a Broadway show in, uh, you know, 1978. Um, mm. An off-way show, probably, mm-hmm. but we we were playing the well, it was the Anta then, then it turned into the Virginia. Now it's the what is August it now? Wilson. The August, August Wilson, Wilson. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And across the street at the then Alvin, now Neil right. Simon was yeah. Annie. Annie. <laughs> okay. And the history of the American film is really dark and twisted and funny and strange, and not bridge and tunnel crowd. Yeah, you know material. Yeah. So, you know, I look back on the on the reviews, and they were they were raves. I thought, geez, with the reviews like this, why didn't it run? Well, in, yeah. it, it, you know, it it wasn't star driven. Uh, it um, it was this you know odd. Can you um, very hard to 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 get an audience in, in that time um, excited about it? Um, you know, when I think of Silence, the musical, which I did years later, yeah. that's the kind of you know, piece of us. Wonderful, uh, satirical, mm-hmm. farcical, um, but with a really dark undercurrent. Um, <laughs> a lot of black humor involved. History of the American film, you know, didn't last very long, but Grazi choreographed, and she put me in something called The Millican Show. Oh. Do you have any idea what The we, Millican Show? These was? industrials. We love hearing yeah. about these, David. We love the, these. The Emperor of all industrial shows, the, the king of industrials. Millican Fabrics made polyester, <laughs> the stuff you wouldn't want to wear ever. Um, but you couldn't stain it. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't rumple it. You could, it lasted forever. And they used the bulk of their advertising budget, millions of dollars, and put on a show every spring for what would be eventually fall fashion week but when the buyers were in town they would bust them over to the waldorf astoria they treat them to a fabulous breakfast and and a breakfast show to go with it now this was not just a show this was a full-on broadway-sized orchestra full-on broadway-sized chorus full-on stars and every year a new show would be written new book musical and they would use tunes from the Great American Songbook, from the Broadway Songbook, and write new lyrics to them. And uh, Grazie had been uh, choreographing it for a few years, and she brought me on because um, they needed a, a, a cohort for Jack Weston. The, uh, the, the story of this year's show was um, uh, sort of a... Mm, a, a very loosely based uh, story like the producers. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Jack Weston was a, a shyster producer, and he was just getting out of jail with his sidekick, me, mm. young, skinny, funny guy. Uh, and his whole scheme for getting back on top of the, the heap was to go to each of his six glamorous ex-wives and convince them to give him money to produce a show starring them. And these glamorous ex-wives were, if I can remember them all, um, Sid Charisse, Ginger Rogers, Ann Miller, Phyllis Diller, um, Dorothy Loudon. Um, I said oh six or eight of them. Uh, Donna, Donna McKechnie. And I of course. couldn't tell you who the eighth one was. Anyway, and each of them would tell them to we go see them, go take a, you know, a flying leap. And then they'd think about it and muse about it and imagine themselves in some fabulous number in this show. And each one would be in um, wardrobe that Millican Fabrics would be featured in. So, for instance, oh, 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 who, oh, who was the, the eighth one was um, Esther Williams. No, no, I was just going to say Esther, no, wow, Esther Williams, you know, wow. would do the swimsuit number. Uh-huh. And um, Sid Charisse would do the lingerie number. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ann Miller would do the sportswear number. <laughs> and, you know, and so, and, uh, and then they had this fabulous big dance number. And then we'd show up again for the next scene and talk to the next wife. And yeah. so uh, <laughs> and then it was kind of fabulous. And there would always be a kid's number uh, for the Millikitties, the children's mm. swear. And Byork Lee stuck in there as a kid, <laughs> and she was actually wrangling the kids. And that was my big number. The funny guy got to do the number with the kids. Um, so, which also included a demonstration of how Millican Fabrics, you know, comes into the wash, comes out of the wash, you know, of course. No stains, nothing. So demonstrating with the fa- um, And wh- one of the Millikitties that year was Jane Krakowski. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Just, it goes on and on. Anyway, um, <laughs> Uh, Tommy Walsh was one of them, uh, and they treated they treated you so well. They took over yeah. the entire Minskoff rehearsal studios, and big t- t- numbers would be you know rehearsing in one studio and small numbers in another. And there was a whole studio that was just food, mm. and a whole studio that was just telephones. And I mean, it was this was this was really great stuff. They would send cars for the kids who were doing Broadway shows, so they would not have to walk to the theaters. They'd be picked up, delivered to their theater at the door. You know, all the, just great. great yeah. Treat people really, really well. And they were very generous with their salaries as well. So everybody wanted to be in the Millican show, basically. It was a great, great gig. So Grazia was choreographing, and um, uh, Tommy Walsh uh, was uh, in the dancing uh, tr- troupe, and uh, he, he was assisting Tommy developing a show called A Day in Hollywood and a Nick Rain. <laughs> and convinced Tommy that um, he ought to see me for, uh, for the part of um, Groucho. So that's how that happened. You know, it's all a daisy chain. All the show business is, is a, you know, is patterns of connections. And um, yeah. uh, I, I went in and I, uh, first I, you know, got a hold of every Marsh Brothers movie I could get a hold of and, to watch. And um, <laughs> I made the night before my audition. You're so young and stupid. You just, you know, again, this is like writing the term paper the night before it's submitted. You know, I I figured out how to do the mustache and I I took a a wire coat hanger and a pair of pliers and made myself a pair of 
glasses, a pair of wire rim glasses out of coat hanger. Of course. Um, and uh, went upstairs to my neighbor at two o'clock in the morning and made her watch me do my audition. <laughs> uh, and the next day, the audition went really well. Mm. So, uh, and Tommy was very, very uh, generous. And then um, I hadn't ever tap danced before. So he got up and we, you know, he gave me a lesson. We had a little tap dance thing together. And so he called me back for Alex Cohen, who was the producer, to, to see. So the first time you go in there and you're making yourself these glasses, and you don't, you don't know what the, the hell you're doing. And uh, so you do just fine because you don't know how much you have to lose. Right. But now Alex Cohen was in the room. <laughs> this was like David Merrick was in there. You know, this was... Mm. And I just crashed and burned. I, I, I couldn't have been worse. Just, just god awful. And um, apparently, after after that was over, uh, Alex said, "What were you kidding?" And and Tommy said, "Let me bring him back." So Tommy scheduled another audition for me. He worked with me a little bit beforehand. He made it happen. He got rid of the he got rid of the jitters. Yeah. And um, I got the job. You know, you probably didn't do a lot of musical auditions, but did you have a go-to song that you used a lot, or like a? Again, I was just starting song? out, so I didn't have a trunk. Um, I sang a, a cocktail piano version of Rubber Ducky. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you. I kept is... it in my trunk, by the way, because it works. <laughs> I, if it works, it works. If it gets you the job, it gets you the job. Now, had this had the breakfast show not come up. Was your plan after History of the American Film closing to go back to Washington? Uh, no, there was no there was no going back. Um, I had decided that it was time to be in New York, so I didn't have a plan B. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> Luckily, things just happened. Right. I just knew that I was sort of going to be there. Mm-hmm. But, and uh, you know, incredibly naive. I mean, gosh, it's amazing that I got any work at all. You, we always ask people, you know, when you first got to the city, how did you know? what to do but right. did you have someone helping you out or was it just gut instinct or uh taking what you learned in washington and just I, applying it here no getting to know people in the company of american film um was the help you know mm-hmm. and seeing how they lived and where they lived and how they did and so forth so that 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 became my my model i thought everybody lived in you know second floor front apartment of a brownstone because that's what most of them were doing. So that's what I figured I had to do. And that's what I did. I, you know, I, I found one and um, I broke the budget. It was $325 a month, which was enormous. Um, but it was in the right uh, neighborhood. And um, it looked like the, their other apartments. And just coincidentally, uh, John Kander and Albert Stevenson lived at the other end of the block. Mm. And the, and from uh, Hollywood, Ukraine, I got to know Albert very well. Mm-hmm. Albert's John's husband. Yeah. And so we became friends. So, David, let me ask you this. Uh, first of all, we love Hollywood, Ukraine. We think it's, it's, it's such a fantastic score. It's a great show. Um, there's the wonderful clip of you performing it on the Tony Awards. What was the rehearsal process like for this show? You know, we had a, a, a very sp- special rehearsal process because we were rehearsing in the um the rooftop theater at the new amsterdam wow this was before disney disneyfied and restored the new amsterdam which is now you know gorgeous 
uh, downstairs. But in the old days, after the Ziegfeld Follies, there was a midnight show up on the rooftop in a, in a cabaret space that was um, where all the blue material could be done. Mm-hmm. You know, it was adults only. And um, there was a, a wonderful little uh, cabaret theater up there with the proscenium arch and the, the whole thing. And um, it was just, you know, dusty and, <laughs> and, and cobwebby. And, mm-hmm. But, you know, Tommy Toon, if nothing else, has such a, a, a knack for style. Mm-hmm. Um, how he found this this place, I don't know. We knew we were going into the, the Golden, which is the smallest uh, theater on Broadway. Um, mm. And he wanted a space that replicated uh, as much as possible the, the stage area and uh, playing space. So how he found it, I don't know. I don't think it had been used uh, for, for years. But what a treat to go up to that rooftop oh, and, and be up history. there with those, with those ghosts and and find these little passageways and um the, the show had been a, a more of a review cabaret kind of piece when it premiered in london alex cohen who had a history of bringing over shows from london to produce had found it and brought it over uh so tommy's idea was to to try to find a way to expand it into a an actual broadway show mm-hmm. um because the first act in london was just a bunch of people standing around a piano singing songs Mm. Um, so he and the second was just this um, madcap take on Chekhov's The Bear as if done by the Marx Brothers so his notion um, was to make the Marx Brothers bit a movie and then the the first act the stage show of the theater where the movie was being played Mm. Um, I think he might have gotten uh, some glimmer of this from he had worked on a show called Double Feature um, in the provinces prior to this. Mm. Um, maybe with Mike Nichols, I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, that was the the, the 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 germ of the idea. So he had to find a way to expand the first act to make it an actual stage show. His, his first idea was the ankle stage. Now, if you haven't seen the original, it's hard to describe, but the the first act took place in Grandma's Chinese theater, ostensibly. Mm-hmm. And above the, the doors with the portholes that would get you in and out of the theater, there was an inner above, as they would say in Shakespeare's day. Uh, but it was only um, tall enough to be from the floor to knees. So how many, you know, a couple feet mm-hmm. in height. And he got the idea from his early days living in New York in a basement apartment and looking up through the little window where you could see the, yeah. the sidewalk and just the feet going by. Yeah. And because Grauman's uh, has the hand and footprint uh, patio out front, this became the theme of, of, um, of the first act. And the big number in the first act was called famous feet, which Priscilla Lopez and I sang, um, dreaming about having our hands and, and feet in, in the cement. And then above us in this ankle stage, Tommy Toon choreographed a number where you could identify who the people were by what shoes they were wearing. Mm. You know, oh. Mickey and Minnie Mouse doing clog dancing. Um, uh, Fred and Ginger, you could see the bottom of the dress. You could see, you know, Fred's patent leather shoes, her heels. Um, 
Sonia Henny made an appearance in <laughs> in ice skates and things like that. And as the number went on, you started to realize that the feet were doing things that were impossible to be done because he had he had rigged above it a whole set of uh, bars and pulleys and and uh, uh, gymnastic equipment so that all of a sudden feet were defying gravity and doing things that you couldn't actually do, but they were gorgeous mm. and they were eventually flying. Um, so th- this became the germ of how the whole first act started to, to uh, become a, a, a stage show. Um, we took the show out of town to uh, Baltimore and the second act worked like gangbusters, the movie version, the, the night in the Ukraine part. Uh, and of course the trick was all the people you saw in act one is wannabe ushers and ushers at Grandma's Chinese theater turned into the characters in the, in the show. Um, but the first act really you know, wasn't taken off and that was a problem. So uh, Tommy brought in um, Jerry Herman to write a couple of numbers. The opening number, for instance, um, just go to the movies. And uh, he also wrote a, a, a ballad for uh, Priscilla called um, Best in the World. Mm-hmm. The first act came together. Um, the first number involved a hand jive, which uh, in expanded way showed up again in, in the Will Rogers Follies. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, that was, and of course, that was Tommy's strong suit to, to, to build Flash. And um, by the time we got to New York, it was, it was cooked, and, and that was good. We did have a little, little trouble, uh, first pre- preview, <laughs> uh, changing the set. Uh, from Act One to Act Two, it was taking forever, um, and the audience was getting restless. And I remember Tune going out on stage and saying, "Ladies and gentlemen, you know, even in this era of jet travel, it takes much longer to get from Hollywood to the Ukraine than you might think." <laughs> and and off we went. Charming, uh, funny, a, and charming. What a, what a what a fun show that was. Hello, this is Julie. When I'm not playing a woman pretending to be a man pretending to be a woman, I listen to Broadway behind the curtain. And I head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And I search behind the curtain Broadway's living legends and set a monthly donation. Mine is $10,000. But you may give what you like. Whatever you give will be practically perfect. So, remember, patreon.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What do you look for out of a director? To you, what is the ideal actor director relationship? Collaboration. I should have a real smart ass answer for that. No, no, no. Uh, but um, a structure, you know, kids like and do well with structure. <laughs> uh, you know that as a father, right? Oh, and, yes. Oh, yes. And do less well without a structure. So there's a happy medium there between, you know, finding out where the, where the boundaries are and then being allowed to play within those boundaries. I think uh, too often, uh, directors err on the side of over control or under control uh it's no good to be just let loose because then you have no idea you know what the rules of the game are and everyone's in a different play you've seen that Mm -hmm. certainly enough uh where every actor up there seems to be doing a different show or there are directors who want you to lift your pinky on the third word and that stifles um not only creativity but flow Mm-hmm. So I guess to answer your question, I look for a really good storyteller. Uh, you know, Bart Sharp, for, Bart Sharp, for instance, mm-hmm. is a really good storyteller. Um, John Doyle is a really good storyteller. Uh, and someone who casts well, that's 90% of the, of the job. And then someone who says, okay, here's the structure. Here's what we're, here's what we're, aiming for and i'll catch you if you fall outside the the playpen um so i i i I guess though and then of course a measure of of kindness i don't think uh you get the best out of people by beating them up and we certainly have known a lot of stories about actors i mean about uh, directors and choreographers who beat people up or 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 play people against each other and you know theaters uh, showbiz is hard enough have you had a lot of those experiences where bad ones? Yeah. No, I've been, been really, lucky. really lucky. I can count on you know one or two fingers the bad ones, and and I don't even talk about them because it's great, not worth it. Worth it but uh, that's lucky. Yeah. Now, um, when you get a role, you sign on to a project. Um, where do you begin your preparation for the character? Is there a certain acting philosophy that you follow, or how do you begin creating a character? Uh, for me, it's always. If it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to go into the words and the music and the lyrics, really go into the words and the music and the lyrics. Um, I I try not to uh, learn by rote. Uh, mm. I'm not particularly good at, at um, quick memorization. Boy, I did a, a series with Jane Curtin once, and it was just astonishing. They give her an entire new page. She'd read it top to bottom, put the page down and say, okay, roll camera. And she'd know it. She had the most incredibly developed short-term memory of anyone I've ever worked with. Wow. Um, But as I say, I I stay with the the text. Um, One day I just put it down. It's no longer, it's no longer necessary. So um, music and lyrics, much easier. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I find, boy, after a day, after being with a song it'll it'll mostly be there and did you uh do you like a lot of table work or no um it depends who you're working with i i prefer to get up yeah uh john doyle doesn't even do a table read Mm -hmm. Mm -mm. 
Nothing. Just gets right into First it. day, yeah. you're 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 moving. Of course, the other part of that, the the un, uh, unquestioned part of that question is, what do you do when you're going into a show? Yeah. For instance, um, after Hollywood Ukraine, my next Broadway show was uh, Pirates of Penzance again with Graziella, but I was the second company. Treat Williams, Maureen McGovern, um, George S. Irving, Kay Ballard. Mm-hmm. Um, Patrick Cassidy. So we were the second company and we went in as a company, Mm. but we were expected to pretty much be where the other folks were in terms of, you know, blocking and, 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 and intent. So I think when you're, when you're going into a show, which is sometimes a tougher job than creating a, a, a part. Sure. You have to bear that in mind. So that's, that's an entirely different, process the same was true of my next Broadway show after pirates which was torch song trilogy <laughs> i replaced harvey firestein now the the tricky part of that was that my first performance was the day after the night the show and harvey won tony awards what wow so they had already been doing it for the year you know and then uh, so and he was going off to uh to write La Caja Folk in Boston. So he wins us Tony and and the the next night I'm on. And I'll never forget. I was in the the lobby the day of my opening night, which was a Monday and the the Tony had been on the Sunday night before. And I'm in the corner of the lobby, just jamming words, you know, trying to just make sure, because it's a big, big, big animal to swallow. Just, yeah. just in terms of words. Yeah. And um, I've been doing put-in rehearsals with the stage manager, and I was with the original cast, um, uh, uh, Fisher Stevens and, El- and Estelle Getty and Cord mm-hmm. Miller. So I wanted to fit into their world. Um, and I ain't Harvey Firestein, you know, just yeah. <laughs> physically and otherwise. Yeah. So uh, perforce I had to be something different, but still be in their world. So it was it was a huge, huge. <laughs> so I'm I'm there just to go, God, 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 get the words, get the words, get the words. And there's a lady in the box office line, reaming the box office manager a new a hole because she just learned that Harvey wasn't in the show. And I could hear her screaming across the the, the lobby. What do you mean he's not in the show? <laughs> <laughs> I've come all this way. I expected to see the this went on and on and on. I've got, and at that, at that moment, Harvey came out from backstage. Uh-oh. And he had, and it was a Helen Hastie who had to come through the lobby to get out. And she turns into Harvey, Harvey, I've come all the way from Florida to see you when you're not in the show. <laughs> God bless him. He turned and he said, well, um, the actor is replaced. He's a wonderful actor and you're going to like him very much. And he turned around and he said, in fact, he's sitting right over there. And she turned around and looked at me and said, I don't know him. <laughs> and, and that was my opening night audience. That's so biz. My God. Wow. Anyway. But, what a uh, great story. Oi, 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 oi. Yeah. It, that, was, that was wild. Okay, um, so, so th- this is the early 80s, and then you start to get a lot of television work. Yeah, then I sort of took a detour. Um, Consciously? Uh, when, when I left Torch Song, it was to do... Um, a pilot for NBC called It's Your Move opposite a young actor named Jason Bateman. Oh. Who has done pretty well for himself. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. In that in that in that realm, yeah. yeah. Um <laughs> we uh 
we were on NBC, a uh, half hour sitcom mm. opposite a show called Dynasty on ABC. Oh. So there weren't many people watching us. <laughs> no. Uh, however, it was a very weird situation because our Nielsen ratings were low, but our TVQ was high mm. because all the kids were watching us. They weren't watching yeah. Dynasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it wasn't enough to, to keep us on the air. We just did one, one year. But the guys who created that show uh, then were hired by a, a new fledgling network called Fox to write a show called Married with Children. So Again, I had just gotten back to New York um connections yeah i was um it was it's crazy um and i i got into um it's only a play and while i was doing that i got a a, a call from uh ron levitt and michael moy who had created it's your Move, and they said well we've got this pilot we're doing for this network fog we don't know but we'd like you to shoot the pilot for us so i said sure thinking i go out and and shoot a pilot, and that was, it was just it. an offer. No audition. You just they just Correct. offered it to you. Just okay, yeah, just making sure. Yeah, we love those. We do <laughs> love those. <laughs> um, anyway, so I went out to shoot a pilot, and three years later, you know, I, I the, the the stove was still on in New York. Yeah. Um, so um, I did marry with children for the first four seasons, and I said to the guys, and by that time they were moving on to other projects. Right. Ron and Michael were, and um, said, I, 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 I'm, I was commuting. I was flying back and forth uh, every couple of weeks oh, wow. to shoot. And um, so uh, th- they graciously let me out of the last couple of years of my contract and um, mm-hmm. asked me to come back on an annual basis to do guest spots, to do a funny uh, story arc about where my character Steve had been in, you know, keeps right. going back into their lives. So that's how that's how that that finished off. So then I I came back to New York and got back into the theater, which is what I had intended to do. Yeah. When I, so you, you never know, really officially you never really moved to LA to like no you know, no it's not my town. I'm happy to go work there, but uh, sure. Um, I'm a it's temporary. I'm an, East, yeah. I'm an East Coast boy. I'm a theater boy, and yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and no sooner did I get yeah. back from that than um, I wound up on tour with Guys and Dolls. <laughs> When my opening night was Tokyo. Tell me a little bit about your opening night in Tokyo. Is it the audiences? I hear <laughs> it was the show was ten minutes shorter. Great <laughs> <The> laughs. <laughs> and, you know, I'm playing Nathan, and it's all about the laughs. Mm. It's my opening night, and it's just crickets. Just flatline. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, we discovered that um, Japanese audiences, which were wonderfully attentive. Mm-hmm. Mm are used to um, protocols in, say, Kabuki, where you don't applaud until the picture is formed. There, there in, in every Kabuki piece, there are these famous oh. pictures. Um, uh, and part of the deal is the better you are at creating the picture, the, you know, the bigger the response. Well, in American musical theater, the picture never stops because as soon as the number ends, the set starts to move. So it's not polite to applaud. Oh my goodness. And not to mention, try to, to, to understand Abe Burroughs jokes. Sure. So no. there was nothing until we got to the end and then they went nuts. Mm. Like standing on chairs, mm. nuts. Mm. Wow. You know, 10-minute-long standing ovation nuts. 
they loved the show. It was, you know, colorful. It was fun. It was lively. It was, the dancing was great. That stay in Tokyo was, was pretty extraordinary. I was never so happy to see Seattle in my life because mm-hmm. uh, then I could judge the laughs. Um, right. Yeah. How, how yeah. you were doing in the show. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Whether I had no idea whether I was doing anything right or not. So. Right. David, let me ask you, you know, because this is something that maybe a lot of our younger listeners might struggle with someday. When when you chose to follow your your passion and do stage, was there anyone, agents, managers saying, you know, what are you doing? Why are you why? kidding me? Are you, you know, kidding like... me? <laughs> My LA agent practically had me drawn and quartered. Yeah, like that was like sacrilege to leave a hit show like in the fourth yeah, season. Yeah, and, and didn't have a particularly uh broad range of uh, experience with the theater so it didn't make any sense sure, uh, sure. and i must say you know sometimes in the middle of the night my wallet wakes me up and <laughs> and, and says hey <laughs> <laughs> really <Go> really <laughs> um curiously enough right after that I, I, well, most of it had to do with wanting to be back in new york and wanting to be in the theater but as soon as i got back to new york i was offered another television series and that was the one with um with jane Curtin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it shot in New York. Oh, okay. So, uh, it was called uh, working it out. Um, but it was also on NBC. Um, my track record with NBC was first did your move and then work it out. <laughs> Not too good. Uh, it only lasted a, a, a season, but that in the day was rare to have a TV show sh- that shot in New York. Now it's yeah. much, much more common. Sure. But, um, no, that, that was a, a bone of some contention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I eventually wound up with different agents mm-hmm. uh, who understood my predilections um, yeah, more. But, yeah. um, but you know, the what ifs, the what ifs. If I hadn't left it, I wouldn't have met an extraordinary number of really, really interesting people and, and done some really interesting things. I would have had a lot of money. I don't know what kind of further career I'd have had in television. Usually television eats you up and spits you out. That's yeah. right. But... I don't know. You, you know, you the took control ifs, of your career. You, you you took control of it. I, I mean, took. You know, I, 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 I took admire control that. And, you know, you 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 play your money. You take your chances. Mm-hmm. And and that's a rarity. But the idea of of having um, a code of ethics and some principles, and sticking to that, and not being you know swayed by ninety million voices coming at you. <laughs> the trick is, <laughs> or, or the mistake is thinking anybody else will care. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. So, uh, you know, you have to be careful about that. But um, yeah, uh, I other, other than financially, I have no regrets. Great. Well, like we said before, you know, it's Hollywood's loss is our gain. And so when you finally come back to Broadway, Kevin, in one of your favorite shows of all time, what are we, Titanic. Which one? Oh, Titanic. Of course. Ah. Well, my mentor was uh, my my, as my music directing side of my life. My mentor is Kevin Stites. I, I oh. worked with him for like three he, years. Uh, he was and he taught me everything I ah. know and was like one of the most. And I think think we actually met at a party once, but he's literally one of the most brilliant music directors I've ever known. I, mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I, yeah. I can't say enough good things about Kevin. I've never m- met anywhere a finer choral conductor. Same. What was this uh, rehearsal process like, uh, getting Titanic to the place? Because it was, you know, it's much has been written about it. It was, it was a oh, it was pretty that, exciting. I mean, we couldn't go out of town. You, we couldn't make yeah. our mistakes privately. We had to make Which our mistakes was, in in front of was everybody. New. Yeah, uh, and the the set was so complicated. Uh, yeah. They had to to dig out the the floor of the Lafontaine, uh, the 
the stage floor, pour a new concrete floor so there would be enough support for the hydraulics to, to do all these tricks with the set. <clears throat> and then just to get the, the tech stuff working, you know, you had a whole bunch of computers talking to each other or trying to talk to each other nicely until they got sorted out. Sometimes they didn't. Our first preview, you may have heard this legendary tale, was well over three hours long. I mean, you know, well, you know, 11 o'clock was in the rear view mirror and um, the uh, pneumatic systems had, had frozen to the extent where it, <laughs> the ship didn't sink. Oof. Now this is a problem when you're telling the story about the Titanic. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, it eventually all got sorted out and, um, you know, what was really splendid about working on that show was, <clears throat> first of all, Richard Jones, who was a British director, works primarily in opera, mm-hmm. knew how to handle big. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he had a, a, a vision of the thing that uh, allowed for a, a visual that was not literal. I, that's the only way I can can, can express it. He was telling a... a um, a literal story, but the visuals that went with it were not. And somehow he, he managed to, 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 to pull this off. And secondly, we had a team of writers who were really craftsmen, mm-hmm. Maury and, and Peter Stone. And if anybody has mastered the art of writing a book for musical, which is about the hardest thing you can do in dramatic literature, people don't realize how difficult a task that is to write a good mm-hmm. book for a musical. And Peter is a past master and he would have a little table in the back of the, of the house and he'd see the doctor is in and you'd go to Peter and say, Peter, I don't think I need to say this. And he would be drawing a red line through it. Huh. And they constantly were understanding structurally how to fix the piece and you know usually when you get into rehearsal you make a decision and then the the artistic team makes another decision and then the third decision is based on the second and so forth and so you tend to drift and so all of a sudden you have a different show than what you came into the room with Mm. it happens all the time watch what happens with workshops that turn into shows that look a whole lot different on broadway yeah um I did a couple of those. Um, and or sometimes you, you lose the magic that was in the workshop room because you get into production and it blows it all up yeah. and you lose the heart, the essence of the piece. Anyway, these guys understood structure and they understood that, OK, this is a problem. This bit of our story is a problem, but we can't fix that until next Tuesday because remember, we're still performing and you have very limited hours during the week where you can actually accomplish anything. And, you know, Wednesdays and Saturdays are total losses. So, you know, you got Tuesday afternoon, you got Thursday afternoon, you got Friday afternoon, and you can only rehearse X numbers, X number of hours because you're also performing. So it's a very limited schedule. Anyway, they would understand a problem, say, okay, we're going to fix this tonight. That has to wait till next Tuesday and blah, blah, blah. And they went through methodically, 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 taking out, changing. Then there were technical problems that had to be solved. There's a, there's a, a scene... <laughs> Where, uh, again, after the lifeboats have left, they're just portholes. And you see faces coming into the portholes, revealing various thoughts. Mm-hmm. It turned out to be a pretty nifty scene, actually. And it was 
in lieu of that song. Mm. But it, something had to be there because behind these guys who were all standing on Apple boxes, there were technicians running around like mad, putting together the, the sinking, <laughs> you know, setting up yeah. the smoking room so that it would, and the furniture would go. All that stuff had to be done behind the scrim while they were. So this, Peter had to come up with this, this scene arbitrarily to fix a technical problem, but he was good enough to make it functional for the play. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of stuff that, that happened time and time and time again with, with uh, Titanic. You know, they had printed our obituary, you know, long before we opened. And um, <clears throat> it was too easy. I mean, it was, it was too easy. There's so many metaphors for, you know, sinking ship. Yeah. But um, I'll never forget you know, the, the thrill of opening night and how they managed to turn, you should pardon the expression, you know, turn that ship around. It was uh, it was thrilling. Nobody wanted to leave that cast. Mm-hmm. You know, usually you put mm-hmm. in your year and mm-hmm. it's on to the next thing. Nobody wanted to leave. It was such a love fest. And we'd all been in the trenches together. Mm-hmm. Um, that was also my favorite Zitz probe ever. We'd been working with piano. And the first day we heard that orchestra and that first bit of music, bump, 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 but I, mean, I got goosebumps just now. Jonathan Tunick think, orchestration. Think and a Jonathan I mean, yeah. Tunick orchestration. And his first Tony. Yeah, he won the Tony for that, that, yeah. You know, after all those glorious orchestrations of Sondheim stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's it's symphonic. <laughs> it's, it, get, it gets inside your skin, and you just can't help but being moved by it. Um, so, you know, between uh, Kevin's vocal arrangements and Jonathan's orchestrations and um, Maury's music, I mean, it, it, was a, it was a triple play. It really was. And you know, what was experience? Yeah. What was it like to do the reunion a few years back? Even better. Yeah. Not a dry eye in the place. Boy, we got that was uh, that was something. The, that first day together, there was just buckets of projectile tears. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then to do it in concert, where uh, there were historical projections on the rear wall of Alice Tully, there was a chorus of two hundred voices. Mm. Uh, an orchestra of 35, 37, I mean, they expanded the orchestra. Um, and um, Don Stevenson, who had uh, been in the original company, um, directed it. And in many ways, the piece itself, again, back to what Richard Jones tried to do with it, it's better in your imagination. You can't literally tell that story in a theater. Mm-hmm. So the, the more abstract it is, I think the the more the the words and the music and the lyrics you know, get in you because you're not distracted by, well, wait a minute, that doesn't look like the ship. And because we were in a nonspecific space, a concert space, and Don could arrange people um, effectively, but not literally. Uh, and we had all that huge sound behind us, and we were all so um, emotionally attached to the material. I think it's probably the best performance of that piece that there ever was that mm-hmm. night. I mean, it, it blew the roof off Alice Tully. The audience went batshit. I mean, and and rightly so. Yeah, uh, that truly, when I die, that will be one of the th- the th- last memories I have, and that'll be fine. Oh, oh that's beautiful. Yeah. And you know, you said with Titanic. Uh, people stayed around for much longer than you know you you anticipate, and I feel like the the next big project for you, which was Wicked, is is <laughs> my corporate job. 
With, no, which is, yeah, exactly, which is something similar. Um, you've played the wizard now over 500 times? Is that right? Uh, over 1,200, please. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Over 1,200 Damn. times. Okay. Yeah. So how did this first come about, and why do you keep returning to it? Payback pay for leaving married with children, I guess. <laughs> I guess my checkbook said, hey, wait a minute, buddy. Wait a minute. You owe me. Um, uh, let's see. How did it come about? Um, my new New York agent, uh, Steve Stone. Um, oh yeah, okay. Uh, of Cornerstone, wonderful agency, boutique oh, yeah. agency. Oh yeah. Um, suggested that I uh, be considered for the national tour. Uh, and um, short story, shorter. Um, I was hired for the national. Uh, so that was with uh, Carol Kane was uh, great. My marvel um, mm. with Stephanie Block who had done oh, yeah. the original uh, workshops of work, but was denied the, um, the Broadway show, which was a tough, tough break. So it was Stephanie and Kendra Kessebaum and uh, Carol Kane and me. And um, I did the, that first national for the first year of the national tour and then went into the Broadway company for a year and a half. Um, and then took about a five minute break and uh, Briefly visited the Chicago company to be. To, that was simply uh, the wizard had um, an accident, had, had okay. hurt himself, and so would I go out and do that? Program? Oh, sure. And then uh, uh, John Rubenstein, who had opened the LA company, uh, was f- finishing up, and so they asked me to finish out the LA company, which was, I guess, six months, and then move that company to uh, San Francisco or sit down. So I think altogether it was just a few months over three years that I was wizarding all over the place. Jeez. Now, for for someone who doesn't like to be out of the city for too long, how do you yeah, cope with um, life on tour? I've only done two tours in my life. The first was the National Guys and Dolls, mm-hmm. uh, and the second was Wicked, and they were both first-class tours. Mm-hmm. Throwbacks to the past when you were traveling with big steamer trunks and going to swell cities for big sit-downs. Yep. Um, well-paying gigs uh now it's not so much you know and some of them even uh, yeah they're tiered they're uh and split weeks uh, it's just not fun so th- this was these, these were high class enterprises and they were both really really big popular shows yeah hit guaranteed show. right guaranteed hits um in fact they didn't know what kind of a hit they had with the with the wicked tour um and they undersold it basically uh it was coming on the heels of um the full Monty had gone out and mm-hmm. and not done well mm-hmm. and th- that tour stopped so they weren't sure how it was going to sell on the road and of course it was just boffo that every Bonkers. time they opened a box office in the city they would sell out within hours mm-hmm. so they had to rethink the whole idea we uh when f- we we did the shakedown in Toronto and then went to Chicago and the, the sales were so brisk that they left our set behind in Chicago and had a whole nother one built in Canada and shipped to LA. So when we got to LA, we had a brand new set and then we had yet another one with that. And we left that one behind for the LA company, the sit down that was going in behind us. And then the third set uh, then traveled with us for the, the rest of that first wow. year of the tour uh so it was it was it was crazy it was crazy balls yeah. and um lovely people you know great time yeah. was the closest thing i'll ever do to a rock concert yeah. you know and you know it was great 
crazy fans. And uh, yep. so, you know, it, yeah, touring is not my favorite thing, but under those circumstances, it ain't too shabby. And now tell us a little bit about your association with Williamstown and it, regional theater and wh- why that should be celebrated more. Well, I think that um, thanks to regional theater, we have new work and that didn't used to be the case. You could try out new work commercially. You could develop new work commercially. Uh, you could develop it off Broadway, but it, even that has become uh, impossible. So it's the non-for-profits and the regionals that are the lifeline for new work in theater. And, you know, thank goodness, uh, the, the last show I did at Williamstown was The Visit mm-hmm. with, with Cheetah. Um, mm-hmm. And again, a tough sell for Broadway. Uh, it been around for a long time. I saw it in Chicago 20 yeah, years ago. Right. Yeah. Difficult piece, uh, but important. And Cheetah is important. And Grazia is important. And John Doyle is important. And John Kander and Fred Ebb are important. And it needed to be seen. It needed to be yeah. produced. Uh, and had it not been for the development at uh, Williamstown, which happened after prior uh, incarnation of it. They, they tried it uh, in the regions, both in Chicago, as a kind of a traditional, old-fashioned, uh, set-based musical, uh, very literally um, hewn to the, the original play. They tried it in the signature in Washington, D.C. Uh, this version, as envisioned by John Doyle, was very different than either of those two uh, and became a, a one-act piece. Uh, it became uh, more of a dreamscape. Uh, the whole, de- whole design was very expressionistic, uh, and that couldn't have happened without Williamstown. It's uh, a piece that I'm terribly proud of. Mm. Yeah, I'm so so grateful that I had a chance to to do it. Yeah, and a candor show. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 The last question that we always ask our guests is, you know, what do you know now that you wished you had known then when you were first coming to New York, coming right out of um, arena? The dentistry. You know? Dentistry is a good uh, profession. Right. <laughs> dentistry. Um, Accounting, yeah. maybe. Oh, I think I would have, um, you know, you need to be a sponge and, mm-hmm. I, and kids are sponge. I, I certainly sponged up a lot, but um I was pretty naive as to the workings of, of the business. I think I probably would have been better served to uh, understand the nuts and bolts of how things work. I got lucky. Um, and uh, I wish that I had been better about um, being present in my life. Mm. Um, I, my life has been a series of wonderful events. I just wish I had been there for most of them. Yeah. Um, oh. I think you take... Uh, a great deal for granted and mm. um, forget to enjoy the, the moment while it's happening um, and let it imprint a little bit more. Um, I think I probably should have been a better listener. Part of that is uh, when you're young, you think you can do anything. Um, I don't think I was ever brash to the point of being uh, uh, a nuisance, but I think I um, could have learned more if I'd just been a little quieter. Because you you just want to you want to impress you want to get out there and show your stuff you you know, um, so uh, I would just recommend to younger performers that uh, they watch and listen mm-hmm. and take in and don't assume that um, they know. Mm. 
That's great. And David, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such an honor getting to talk to you, but also for all the years of watching you do your, your brilliant thing. Thank you so much for allowing us to see your gifts on such a continual basis. Well, so. you're kind of say something as, as nice as that. As an old geezer, I really appreciate no, no. those kinds of words. <laughs> so appreciate it. We, we really do. All right, folks, till next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was baddie. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.